Welcome to Coffee in an Interview. I'm Jacqueline Pena, and I'm here today with Sean Schwanner for Hope Works. Welcome, Sean. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me on today. And I, I just want to start right away with Hope Works. This um, title on its own it sends such an interesting message. Can you tell us what is Hope Works and why did you choose to start this company or okay. this movement? Great, great. Yeah, I, I kind of, I like that idea of being a movement because that's kind of how I've envisioned it. Um, it's a company because I had to have an LLC uh, for payment purposes for some of the consulting I was doing, but it's actually more more of a movement than it is uh, anything else. Hope works, you know, as you may have read in my book, Dear Mama or Semicolon, or even um, A Mother Cries, uh, I come from a very uh, interesting background. It's fantastic. Um, on the one hand, I was surrounded by, I lived in a world of violence and, you know, my mother was brutally abused as a little girl and basically had the ability to care for other people, not her. And so when she was pregnant with myself, she was so sorry. Let's take a, a quick moment. Are you, something's going on with your mic and I can't hear you. I don't know if it's moving. Uh, it, it's not. Is it okay? okay. okay it's okay now. I'm so, so sorry. Could you start that explanation again about Hope sure. Works? No, uh, what happened was mm-hmm. is my Facebook, um, someone went live for my Facebook and they, um, it mutes me. Oh. So if I get a call, it goes mute. And so that's, so I saw Nate Johnson going live. I'm like, oh, great. So oh, I'm sorry I'm about so that. sorry. No, it's okay. But I, I mean, I, I heard everything about the books and, and yeah. then you were starting again to that story. And then I didn't want to miss the story. So if you want to okay. jump in from, from there, that'll be great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I'll just start with the books. And so I wrote, I wrote the, I wrote three or four books. Uh, two of them are strictly autobiographical, uh, Dear Mama and uh, Semicolon. And then A Mother Cries is a blend between autobiography and, you know, academia. And so essentially, my mother was brutally abused as a little girl, brutally. And she basically had the ability to care for the people beating out of her. And her best friend, Irma Jean Bennett, um, her mother, Mama Green, Bertha Lee Green, who I wrote the first book about, uh, essentially told my mother that she would raise me for free. And so the first 12 years of my life, I was raised by Mama Green. Um, and she's an African-American woman, very, very strong, uh, stern, but extremely lovable. <laughs> and she, um, she also had been abused as a young person. But what she did for me was she gave me all of her values, all of her values about kindness, you know, um, never hate, never judge was the thing that I, I was always taught. And based upon that, um, I've always accepted people for exactly who they were. But when, when Mama Green told my mother that she would raise me, uh, my mother was debating between having an abortion and or an adoption. So the fact that this random uh, meeting ended up giving me life uh, told me that, you know, there's something special out there. Now, I had some, a lot of disadvantages growing up, but a lot of advantages. And for me, to be here, I'm a professor now, as you know, and I've written five or six books, which is pretty good for a kid who had C minus uh, average in English all the way through high school. Um, so I've written this. I've been a professional speaker. And the one thing that I've always fallen back on is that 
Mama Green never let me operate without having self-confidence. And that self-confidence, no matter what the obstacle was, always gave me hope. And so being a kid that came from East Toledo, uh, which is, is inner city, is, is like Detroit. Um, we were, basically we were Detroit. We were just the south end of it. Um, it's like, I don't know, Liberty City, if you want to have something familiar in Miami. So I basically grew up in Liberty City. And uh, to get out of that particular area was, uh, was, it wasn't lucky because I had to do work, but I was definitely protected. Um, I had three very strong women, Irma Jean, my mother, and Mama Green, who instilled in me a lot of strength and courage. I had street gang members protect me. Um, drug dealers protected me. Um, and I had, I went to a fantastic school. I went to Maui Valley Country Day School, which was, which is now ranked the number one high school in the state of Ohio. And I just, I don't know how I got in there because uh, I didn't pass the entrance exam. I had a 104 IQ to get in, but I could talk really well. And so the lady, Mrs. Coffin, who interviewed me, told my mother, well, he didn't pass the test, but he did speak very well. So we were going to give him entry. And it just so happened I had all these teachers. So for me, when I looked at Hope Works, what Hope Works really is the embodiment of are all these people that helped me, right? I could have never done it. I could have never done it without the guidance of Bertha and the guidance of teachers all the way through. And so now that I've gone through this entire process of, you know, going to high school, going to college, going to graduate school, which for me personally, I felt like was way over my capability. But I had the confidence because of Bertha to address it and show up every day, submit my homework um, and pass that ultimately I became this professor. And I've never seen myself, as you know, as really a teacher. I'm, you know, I can lecture, but when I'm in the classroom, I'm much more inclined to take the material and make it useful for the students. Because on the first day of class, they learned right away that um, I don't think of them as students at all. I think of them one as family. And as a family, all I am for them is a guide. And the guide is, is that I take them from wherever they are, I disassemble their common sense beliefs about the world and have them reassemble their beliefs based upon themselves. And I tell them on the first day, I said, you know, uh, you might be here for the credits, you might be here for the requirements, you might be here because you want to get a degree or whatever. And I say, that's really not the reason why you're in this classroom. The reason why you're in this classroom is because sitting inside of every single one of you is greatness. The question is, has the, our education system been designed for you to find that greatness and build a life around it? And so I spend the whole semester taking uh, concepts and material from the class and making it useful for them. So I do a lot of creative stuff. Some of it's borderline, you know, it's out there. But all it's designed to do is have them uh, reconstruct the way they see the world so they can see it through their own eyes and not through the eyes of others. Um, in doing so, uh, some people have really thrived in that environment. And what I look at is, is for some of those students, I really am that teacher that gives them hope. And so the other thing that I say is I walk in the classroom and I say, look, you see me. And I usually wear a tie and I dress like this. Okay. On the first day, I wear a tie and I, I, look, I look the part. And I say to, I say to them, when I walk in here, you make assessments of me based upon stereotypes. I said, you see a white male who's wearing a suit or whatever I'm wearing. And because I have a DR in front of my name, you think that I'm smart. You think that I'm a professor. You think that I know a lot. 
and you, know, you make assumptions about me without knowing me. I said, you don't know me at all. And I said, I'm, I'm an inner city kid. I came from East Toledo, raised in an African-American family, surrounded every day by violence, never knowing if I was going to see someone get killed, whether it was me or somebody else. And I said, I was poor, but I went to a private school. And I said, if you look at me on the surface, you can't see me. I said, because we all wear a mask. I said, so when I look at you, I know that all of us have a mask on. So my job is to help you peel the mask off and find you and then build from that. I said, because inside of you is greatness. And you're going to use this class to, um, to look for your greatness. So that is, for me, being a teacher is a tribute to all those people that guided me, right? So when I go in the classroom, it's kind of like Maya Angelou said. She says when she goes into a classroom or she goes on stage, she brings all those people with her who are either dead or still alive. And she says, come with me. We have something to do. So when I go in the classroom, my mom is with me, Irma Jean is with me, Mama Green's with me, uh, Al Getman, Ned Wicks, Lazo Colte, uh, Len Jordan, Simon Dennis, they're all with me when I walk in. And what I deliver to those students are all those teachers that guided me. So I, I just see myself as a guide, a facilitator. I don't see myself as a professor at all. So Hope Works really is an extension of this idea that if you have hope, you always have something to build from. My concern is when we find somebody who is hopeless, that takes, you know, a little bit more effort. And they're, they're out there and, you know, they're in our classrooms. Um, in the last, geez, definitely in the 33 years I've been teaching, but I can say in the last eight years since I've been teaching Miami-Dade College, I probably had 20 to 30 people confess to me that they were contemplating suicide and they want me to help. And it's, and it's an amazing thing. And that, to me, I know it's just a, the surface, but um, because I've walked that path, they come to me. And a lot of them have actually thrived. And one of them, I, I can't remember her name. She's brilliant. But she called me from her car on Kendall campus. And she says, uh, Professor, I can't make it today. Um, I'm not going to survive. And I said, what are you talking about? And so I canceled class. And I went out to the car. And I talked to her. And I said, we need you. And she made it and she got help and everything else. And another woman was in my um, corrections class and she had had her parents' house that they had had for 40 years in Miami and she couldn't pay the taxes and lost it. <clears throat> and she came up to me and she said, you know, I just want you to know that this is going to be my last day on this earth. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, you have health problems? And she said, no, it's just, I lost my parents' house. And I said, you have kids? And she said, yeah. I said, your kids need you. I said, I'll tell you what. Don't worry about the homework for this class, all right? I just want you to come and sit in the room. I said, forget about the assignments. And it just so happened that a week later, and this is true, a week later, her church had collected enough money to send her to Florida A&M University. And they paid for a house for her. They paid for her daughter. And they gave her a full-ride scholarship. And she came up and hugged me. She said, I'm dropping out of school because I'm moving to Tallahassee. I said, really? She said, my church gave me a full-ride scholarship together and paying for my daughter. You know, so you collect these stories along the way, and you know that, you know, for us as educators, we don't actually see the outcome most of the time. We, we have faith that we have an impact. But in those cases, for me, just knowing that they're still living um, is remarkable. So the hopelessness is really hard to work with. If people still have hope, I can build from that. You know, you can develop a plan and strategically 
move forward. But when you have someone who is hopeless, it's a whole different strategy. And it just so happens, like for my book, Semicolon, it just so happens because I learned years ago to share, to share myself because I was, you know, I had a, a Al Cornish, who's the chief uh, learning officer for Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, Sean, he said, you know, you have a light that you have to share with other people. He said, share your networks, share your ideas, and share your past so that people can also uh, find hope and keep moving forward. So I've always decided that I would never follow bureaucratic procedure, no offense. <laughs> um, I wouldn't follow bureaucracy. I would always follow what I thought was the right thing to do for other people because had it not been for those teachers and those three women, who knows where I'd be, right? Mm -hmm. So I look at it as I'm just a guide who can extend my hand and help people up, right? That's, that's the way I look at it. That was, um, you shared so much with us just now. Um, <laughs> your journey um, and your philosophy of hope and where it came from. Um, I'm still thinking about what you are teaching us about what we can do. If people have hope, we can build on that. We can use that. But when you're hopeless, you have to start by helping that person find or see hope, be able to have some kind of hope to build on. And it's a very difficult journey. It's a very difficult line. How do you help someone who is hopeless versus someone who has some hope and you can use that um, in helping them. I thought that was an interesting distinction there among us and, and how to help becomes different based on that piece. Well, you know, um, at the risk of getting in trouble, um, I remember I was talking about suicidal ideation and childhood trauma in class. And, you know, we have very talented students at Miami Day College. And I remember, we were talking about it and I don't know where this one, I can't remember her. Yeah, I can't remember her name, but I won't use her. She raised her hand and I said, you know, how, how do you help somebody who's in this situation? And she raised her hand. She says, I'm there right now. And I said, oh, really? And she says, all I need is a hug. And I'm like, hmm, okay. You know, do I hug this woman uh, in front of 30 people who is clearly uh, extending their hand in search? I said, stand up, stand up. And so I gave her a hug and she started staying after class every day and saying, you know, that hug saved me because I really, really was at the end. And so the one thing, and, and I understand sexual harassment, I get it, right? I mean, it's, it's inappropriate. It's not something that should be practiced. But the one thing that I really remember from my childhood with Irma Jean and my, not my mom, my mom wasn't a hugger. She hugged me about twice a year, but Mama Green, <laughs> Mama Green hugged me every day. Um, she held me. And Irma Jean, Irma Jean was heavy. She weighed about 350. And she used to let me climb up her stomach to her head like I was mountain climbing. And, she's, <laughs> and, and then she would give me this hug, right? And so I always remember the value of just a simple hug because the hug gives you a connection, right? And it, it allows you to experience love, even unconditional love, just so that you can experience what it is to be connected to another human being. And so a few years ago, I just made the decision. I won't hug everybody, but if I see, because, you know, when, when you've been in that position where you didn't know whether life had value in it or not anymore, 
you know, just the ability to have someone to reach out to and have human contact really is a life-saving grace. So I said, you know, I can see behind the mask, right? You can see it. You, you, you can identify if you're really um, in tune with who you are. You can identify a person who has been the victim of all kinds of different types of dark things in, in life, you know. And, you know, when you can do that, you can reach out and you can say, I see you, all right? And so for her, after the hug, after class is over, because <clears throat> she confessed to her ideation, so I didn't have to do it. I said, welcome to the club. I said, we have a club and you're not alone. And because you're not alone, you can call me anytime. You can email me anytime. And I said, your life is more important than my job. And I've always kind of held that mantra that you don't know what is inside a human being that can pay it forward, right? So for example, uh, I had a, a teacher who, when I went through high school, you know, my mother tried to, she tried to whack me in 1981 and I survived, but my self-esteem was annihilated, right? And so I didn't know whether I wanted to keep going or if I wanted to stop and all these things were swirling through my head. And I had a teacher at school um, who basically held me up. She grabbed me by the hand and she held me. And um, her son committed suicide two years ago. So she reached back to me to help her get through her, you know, her remorse because she felt blamed. So in a way, because she saved me, I was able to save her. So when we, when we extend our hand to a person, you don't know how it's going to pay you back. So, for example, we have all the students in our class, say, for example, they will go on to become a teacher, right? Well, if they become a teacher, it is possible that they will have like a daughter in class. And they may be the very beacon and light <clears throat> that takes my daughter to higher, level, uh, higher levels in their own life. So the way I look at it is every life is great and every person has a light to shine on, on someone else's path. So if they are in the dark at a particular point in time, I have a moral obligation, in my opinion, to extend my experience and my hand to them and pick them up. And in doing so, we don't know what kind of impact they're going to have on this world in the future. So I don't know what karma, I don't know what the word is called, uh, pay it forward. I can't, I can't define it. But that's where my hopefulness can extend to others. Now, I'm talking, you know, right now on the darkest you know, topic there is, but just imagine that somebody's just you know wandering and they can't figure out they can't figure out exactly how to get from well not even how to get from how to figure out what their dream is let alone execute the dream my advisor len jordan uh when i was a dentist the greatest guy he, he's the one that taught me how to write by the way he used to say if you don't know where you're going any road will take you there but if you do know where you're going only a few will and so the first thing that you always start with is if you have the hope, then you have to have the dream. Once you have the dream, then you build your vision. Because if you don't have that, how are you going to get there? You're going to wander aimlessly around the world. And, you know, with artificial intelligence uh, coming into prominence, with uh, robotics, with the changing labor force, you know, if you're not clear, absolutely clear on what your vision is, this world is going to blow you around. Right? You're going to be held to the whims and vicissitudes of a changing labor market 
just as we see with the coronavirus. It's changing. People are being displaced. We've had 34 million people lose their jobs with no idea how they're going to get back into the labor force. Well, what kind of vision do you have for your life? If you can see it and you can believe it, then you can't achieve it. But achieving requires a plan that has to be executable. And so the way Hope Works works with the, uh, the coaching part of it, when I coach, is I always start with the dream and the vision. Because without that, it's really hard to orchestrate a plan to get to that destination, right? Mm -hmm. So that, and you know, being a sociologist, I certainly believe in structure. So once you, and I'm an MBA, so I believe in operational management. So if you can look at your outcome and it's a real outcome, then you can develop your personal business plan, measurable, execute it, and it doesn't have to be perfect. So if there's mistakes, then you just fix you fix the pieces that aren't working and just keep moving forward, right? And as long as you're taking those little steps every day, you're going to get to that place. But if you don't know where that place is, you can't get there, mm-hmm. right? That's so, excellent points. Um, this idea of having vision. Uh, so there are two things that stick out to me right now. It's this, this idea of having vision. We, we don't take the time to think about our vision for ourselves and our lives and to articulate it. And I think that that makes a big difference because that's what you're gonna use for, for guidance. The other thing that really also sticks out, sticks out for me, and I guess it's where you um, your coaching comes in more, is um, what, what an incredibly difficult and sometimes dark path you had to walk in life you know, you, you, you shared some things today that just showed that life was not easy at all, that there were moments where you wanted to give up and you talk about suicide ideation and, and you got here and you have a vision and you're using that to move you forward, but what a difficult place to be, but it's because of those dark moments in your path that you're able to recognize suicide ideation and others so you're able to recognize when people lose hope when they're hopeless uh, themselves and and we need to help them and then for those who have hope but are lost how do you build that up so I think I can see how your journey has fueled you to work on hope works yes that's a great analysis thank you yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. And um, no, and thank you for helping so many people um, and also for bringing this idea of vision to us, because I think it's great advice for all of us. For me, talking to you now, for all of our listeners to start thinking, what is your vision? Because life shifts at any moment. You never know what's coming next. And if you don't have a clear vision, you're not able to uh, shift the path you're on if you need to or continue on your current path. So I thought that was interesting. With COVID-19, I'm going to jump to to a related topic. With COVID-19, I can imagine how... What's it been, what it's been doing for a lot of people? I can't even frame this question because emotionally it's difficult, financially it's difficult, physically it's difficult. There's just so much that's been going on with COVID-19. Have you seen a change in how you approach your work with Hope Works because of COVID-19? Or has COVID-19 forced you or enlightened you to pivot the work you do to help people? I mean, how, 
how do you think COVID-19 has impacted us and how has it then impacted your work with Hope Works? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it has changed my perspective entirely. Um, as you know, I'm a very social person and I'm getting to the point where it is very difficult for me to be at home alone. One of my, one of my weaknesses, my personal weaknesses is loneliness. And so, yeah, the classroom I've always regarded as a family simply because of the fact that it is a place where I can share, I don't know if you want to call it wisdom, but experience with people who are hungry for it. And you will find that when I tell stories, I have found that storytelling is probably the most powerful tool that you have. You know, we can call it illustrative examples, but they gravitate to it because when you're telling a story in class and you're building around an important concept, when you're telling a story in class, those students are putting themselves in the story and they're connecting them, themselves to what you're discussing. And so um, I'm able to use that as, as a tool, right? I taught remote and it was really hard because I felt like I was just talking to myself and thanks to the chat, you know, I was getting a lot of communication. So I knew that everything was effective and they were fantastic classes. But I realized that this is an opportunity of a lifetime personally to take time and build something new. On the one hand, I find myself wasting time because somehow the time disappears. I'm doing more work now than I ever have. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I'm not pouring as much as I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, into Hope Works simply because um, I don't know the technology part. So I've had to bring in teammates and stuff like that and seek out guidance <clears throat> and everything is moving forward. You know, but what I had really planned on uh, was becoming a professional motivational speaker. And it's hard to speak to an audience of zero. Um, <laughs> I know that I know that there are people who are doing the virtual professional speaking, which it has a nice place, but it's not, I, I feed off of the live, you know, the live exchange. That's where I thrive. And so this has really made me reformulate things, but it also put into perspective how vulnerable we are to change right? How, you know, I, I work in financial services as well. And one of the components of it is, is life insurance. And when I talk to people, I'm like, you know, how many people imagine that one year ago, they were going to die from a virus that didn't even exist yet. And I said, you know, so when you take a look at coronavirus like that, and you take a look at planning for our lives, we really can learn very quickly that, you know, things are very thin, that um, there is always a threat that massive change can happen. And what we've seen, what we're seeing right now is on those margins, on the fray. People are, people are coming apart. You know, we're seeing an increase in violence. I got to check the stats to see if, if the rate of homicide is really increasing or is it media generated. However, you know, anecdotally, you know, when I get on the bus, which is rare because I'm not trying to be in an incubator for this stuff, but, um, what I have noticed is that there's a lot more threat. There's a lot more arguing, a lot more battling going on in the public space. And I won't get into the nature of those battles, but I'm observing. And people are getting upset because their everyday life is being taken from them. Um, but they have to adapt because of the fact that with the coronavirus, I suspect as a sociologist, the structures of our society are going to shift. You know, mm -hmm. remote, re, the remote workplace is certainly going to become a lot more prominent. Um, the idea of working at a structural place, brick and mortar, will shift because we see that people can still be productive. 
for me, I produce more and less at the same time, if that makes any sense. Right. So, so, so <laughs> I, the one positive thing is I get to spend a lot more time with my daughters. Every day I get to spend five or six hours with them, which is terrific. I wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. Um, but at the same time, I, I find myself, I've really had to dig into my own mental fortitude to work with this, this um, coronavirus because of the isolation. I'm, I'm just not an isolating type. So then if I translate that back into all these other persons who, you know, their day is spent in the living room or maybe, you know, in the kitchen, they're trying to make these adjustments as well. And so I think that it's a, it's a great reset. And what, I mean, this is a great time to figure out what the vision is. And I've done, well, you can't see, I have a whole wall filled with quotations that I picked up during the coronavirus. But one of the things I picked up, I actually created this. I'd give it to students. But one of the things that was really hard for me was I always had confidence, but I didn't have esteem, which is kind of interesting. I've always had, I've always figured that I had enough uh, intelligence and skills that I could do anything, but I didn't always believe I was worthy. Mm. Right? Okay. Because, you know, the violence, when, when, you know, when my mother would explode, you know, it really made me feel like I didn't have much value. And so Mama Green gave me confidence. My mom gave me confidence, but my esteem was always under attack. And so as I started building, I said, you know, is hope worth something that is worthy of moving forward and helping people with? And so one day uh, I'm lecturing in class and I said, <laughs> I'm sorry, you got muted. Uh, one day you were lecturing in class. Do you want to start from there? Yeah, yeah. I said, when I'm lecturing in class, how many of you have the strength and courage to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you, I like you, and you're worthy of your dreams? And I started saying that. I was following Bob Proctor. I don't know where the idea came from, but I actually posted in my mirror, my bathroom mirror, this little sign that says, um, I love you. And I read it to myself every day. I love you. I like you and you're worthy of your dreams. And what I realized was, you know, I, I just first started dating my current fiance. And what I realized was if I can't love myself, then how can that anyone else love me? Mm. Not tomorrow, right? So I said the first thing, and I said, if I can't love me, how can I love you or you love me? And if I can't love myself and I'm, you know, a version of God, you know, God, then how can I love God if I can't love myself? right? Because God was, I was made in God's image. So it became a very complex thinking process that I had to do it every day until I started to believe it. And I know people like me, right? I like me. I get on my nerves sometimes, but I, <laughs> but I do like myself. And, but I had to really retrain myself to do that. Um, and it really has to do with the complex relationship I had with my mother, um, who both loved me and saw me as the obstacle to her having a fulfilled life. And so um, this coronavirus has forced me to really look at myself in a lot of new ways. And I, I'm, I'm always perfectly happy to identify my weaknesses and directly attack them and change them. I, I have no problem because I, I know what my weaknesses are and I, I have no problem, you know, Socrates said, know thyself. Well, that's where it starts. And so in knowing myself, 
uh, I've had to make some significant changes, which I've been happy to do, um, while at the same time realizing that I'm also worthy of having my dreams, right? And I only have one, one goal, uh, one overarching goal that will take care of all the smaller goals. I know it's kind of, yeah, I don't really say it out in public too often, but my ultimate dream is to fill a stadium, right? To be invited to a stadium to give a motivational speech. And I think I've filled, I've filled auditoriums before, but I want to fill a stadium because I figure if I fill a stadium, by that time, I will have done enough to help a lot of people. I will have done enough to earn a living that I can stand on my own and not have to be, you know, tied down to, you know, daily, daily stuff. Um, and if I fill a stadium, I will ultimately have kids who are very comfortable, a marriage that should be uh, strong and effective. And I live a dream. And mm -hmm. so every morning when I wake up, oh, I do this. It's called the 369. All right. Three, and what six, the 369 is, the 369 meditation is, is that you have three incantations of what you want to have happen. Right. Um, money flows to me e easily. So you say that three times in a different way. Then you say, I seek love. Love finds me easily. Three things about love. And then I have three things about achieving my dream. And you do that six times a day. You do it at three in the morning, six in the morning, nine in the morning, then three in the afternoon, six in the afternoon, and nine in the afternoon. And what you're really doing is building inside of you this image, this picture that you can achieve this, and then it becomes a part of who you are. Because the one problem with our education system is we don't teach people how to see who they are within a broader structural flow, right? So until you can see it and believe it, it can't be achieved. Mm -hmm. So I've spent every day doing that and I read and I do all those kind of things, but I figure I can't guide anybody if I can't guide myself. How do you lead someone if you can't lead you? And so anything that I suggest with uh, people, whether it's a professional speaking, whether it's uh, individual coaching, I do to me, I do the same things. And therefore that way I'm not, because I've always had to deal with this idea of being a fraud because I never felt like I was smart enough to become a professor. You know, when I, when I got into kindergarten, <laughs> I had a 104 uh, IQ, 104 and the average is 112. And so I, you know, I was a little less than average when it came to intelligence quotient. But when I graduated, I had a 159, which is pretty good. Wow. And so what I learned from that was it wasn't an innate ability. What it was is I learned the language system of the middle class that writes the tests. And when I realized that what I had learned was vocabulary and communication skills, I said, you know, if I can transform from 104 to 159, anybody can do it. Anybody. And so I have patience. I have a great deal of patience to work with people. I see people for who they are. They can't fool me. Um, not very easily. Because, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where if you couldn't read people, you could die. And yeah. so you had, to be, you had to be able to identify threat, who you could trust, who you couldn't trust. And you had to do it instantaneously. And I had to do it at home. You know, because I just didn't know. I didn't know what would trigger mom or what would set her off. And it didn't happen every day. It's not like it was her, her existence, but when the explosions happened, they happened and they were, they were brutal. 
And um, thank God I had Mama Green on my side, but I mean, it was, uh, it was scary. So I had to learn how to read, not read books. I had to learn how to read people. I later learned how to read books, but um, I wanted to be a professional baseball player and basketball player. I didn't, I wasn't interested in school. I just did it so I could play basketball. <laughs> I kept grades good enough that I could play in the gym. Other than that, I, you know, I wasn't too interested. And, that's and now it. look at but, you, a doctor, yeah, a professor. <laughs> life, is, life is interesting. And ironically, the reason I started to read was because I had a massive um, injury when I was 14. I was being scouted by the Reds and the Cubs to play second base. And um, there was a fly ball hit to right center. And as second baseman, you go back on it until the outfielder calls you off. And I was calling for the play, and it was going to be a tough play. And I jumped in the air to catch it, and I caught it. But the center fielder didn't hear me call for it. And he tried to make a diving catch. And instead, he dove right into my knee. And he crushed my knee. Um, and the doctor told me, because I was trying to play that Monday um, <laughs> in a makeup game. And he said, no, you can't play Monday. And I said, well, what about Wednesday for our regular game? And he goes, no, Sean, you're never going to be able to play sports again. He said, you'll be, you'll be lucky if you walk without a cane for the rest of your life. And I said, damn. I said, you mean I got to start doing homework? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you got out of that message. <laughs> I got out of it. I said, oh, my God. I better focus on doing homework now <laughs> because that's the only hope I have. But and, actually, uh, that's not the hope that you learned from that experience. No, it wasn't. <laughs> what did I learn, Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, let's flip it on you. But you actually learn. I mean, there's so many things. Just looking at what you were able to do and understanding IQ and our measures yeah. of intelligence and, and the issues of equity, right? Learn the language and you'll be there. Learning to read people, but also... Learning about vision and, um, and and understanding that your vision can shift and you shift what that vision was. You thought you were going to be playing for the Cubs or another team and uh, and inspiring people through baseball. And instead, you're inspiring people with your stories and your message of hope and how hope works. Well, those things, so you know, in class, I talk about two events that will happen in your lifetime. They're not they don't have to happen, but they do. There's a crossroads and there's a turning point. A turning point happens to you. A crossroads is where you have to make a decision that's going to change your path. So mm-hmm. when, when Mike dove into my knee, it was a turning point. And when I decided to go to Denison, it was a crossroads. When I got married, it was a crossroads because this decision on this day is going to change my trajectory forever. But what I learned is, is underlying both is you have to be prepared for either all the time. So unless you work on yourself daily and you should work on yourself daily, work on your strengths, work on your weaknesses, focus on your strengths, understand the weaknesses. But if you have a clear vision, when these changes take place, you're always prepared, right? So don't be telling everyone I'm saying this. So I tell my students, I said, look, if I lost my job tonight, I'd be upset tomorrow, but I'd be able to get on my feet the next day, right? And the reason is, is that when you build your networks, when you build your knowledge, and you continue to work on your skills, you're always prepared for a massive change. And going back to the coronavirus, 
you know, I didn't get a stimulus check. I'm not going to, I'm not eligible. And I see a lot of people who have lost their job, which I, I, I hate that for them. Um, and I see a lot of people who, you know, need that stimulus check to survive. Well, why is it our schooling system doesn't train people on how to save, invest, and build their financial house so that when calamity comes, there's preparedness, right? Mm -hmm. And this has been a turning point for millions upon millions of people, probably the whole globe, but we weren't mentally prepared for it as you see how the response has been at both the federal and the state level, and even at the local level. Mm -hmm. And so all these people are struggling, dying, and, and, and I definitely sympathize. However, our education system, they don't tell you about compounding. They don't tell you time value of money. They don't tell you that you should have life insurance. So if something happens to you, even if you're not married, who's going to pay for it if something happens on the Palmetto? So if, if we're not prepared with that and we don't have three to six months of savings and you're not building for your retirement, then we shot a big air ball. And we see that 90% of Americans are not in the category where they can stand on their own. And so I think that there's this major reshift um, and where I work in financial services, where our business is booming simply for the fact that we educate people on how to manage their financial life, right? And personally, part of hope works is it's not just, you know, here's your goal, how do you achieve it? It's a holistic approach, right? It's a spiritual approach. It's building your networks. It's building your financial house. So I put all those pieces in place so that when you get to that destination, which is a process, it's not a destination. When you get there, you will have done all the groundwork so that you can be there in peace. Because Mama Green taught me something. I call it two times PQ. There's two sets of P's that I live by. Patience, perseverance, and persistence. That's one set of three P's. Patience, persistence, and perseverance. The second set of three P's is um, if you live with purity of purpose, you'll always live in peace, right? So you have two sets of P's, purity of purpose, live in peace, PPP, persistence, patience, and perseverance, PPP. So I wrote this equation, two times P raised to the third power. That is what I've decided is really the ultimate goal in our life. If you have those, you can always make it. And so I'm just trying to be a messenger. I'm just trying to send a message. You know? <laughs> it's a huge message, a multi-layered message. <laughs> Thank you. A multi, um, but definitely a, an amazing message of how hope works, um, of having a vision in your life, of looking at life as a turning points and crossroads and being able to identify those and know what those mean. Um, you gave us some incredible messages about um, professionally and education-wise and equity-wise, um, your examples from your life and looking at equity and access. And even this last conversation about COVID-19 and our financial security and being able to weather some of these storms, these are not, this is not information that's really taught to the majority of us. Uh, and it's taught, it's definitely not taught to those who need it the most, those who need to create that infrastructure for themselves and their families. And so looking at that, 
um, you talk so much about imposter syndrome and feeling like a fraud, but not really being, it's just what happens in our process. Lots of stories of survival. I have so many notes here. You have no idea. I love, I love this quote. You have greatness inside of you and how you instill this, uh, this idea in the people you touch through your motivational speeches and your books you. and your lectures. Um, your concept of two times P uh, cubed, I have to kind of, that's a new one for me. So I need to work around that one. Um, taking the time to really meditate, understanding that you are worth something, you are worthy. There is greatness inside of you, no matter what. And you now need to have that. You have to have hope to use that for your journey, but you need a vision so that you know how to walk your journey, the path. Yes. And know that along your path, you'll have a couple of crossroads and you'll have a couple of turning points, but you're going to have a vision that's going to help you through that journey, no matter what. Yes. Absolutely. And so I think you gave me a lot just for me <laughs> to tailor my own life. I hope our listeners um, were able to pull um, from your messages, things that really impact them, that uh, some great takeaways that provide us, provide us with hope, but with guidance on where to look to for the future and where to walk towards for the future. Um, I definitely, again, I got uh, lots of messages. I do have one more question. Um, yeah. We wrap up the interview and then I'm going to see if you have any final thoughts, but what is next? I mean, you shared your whole journey, which is the foundation of Hope Works and is the basis for greener day living as well, which I'm sure you'll mention now. Um, and and our your journey is not over. Our journeys are, you know, we're we're still we're still on a path somewhere. So what's next with Hope Works and greener day living, and and the work that you're doing to empower others to understand that they have greatness inside of themselves, and that they can be who they want to be. They just need yeah. that vision. Well, um, Greener Day Living, the name Greener Day is from Mama Green, right? So the word greener was based upon Bertha Green. And the logo is uh, there are six or seven olive leaves that are wrapped into a heart-shaped formation. And if you look at the cover of Dear Mama, when she's holding me, uh, the shape, this is a photo negative of that shape. It outlines us. So we are outlined as a heart. And so my logo is a heart uh, escalating staircase into a heart. And the olive leaves are green and then there's one purple leaf. And the purple leaf is me. And I love purple and you know I'm a Prince fan, so purple with me. And the rest are green and that's for Mama Green. So the next step with uh, Hope Works is I'm working with some digital marketers. So they're gonna help me promote eBooks and my books. and Right now, since I can't do professional speaking, I'm, I'm building my um, teachable.com classes where I've, I've orchestrated, I have 13 classes designed that I'm gonna put on Teachable. And also through Teachable, I have uh, developed a coaching business. I mean, I've been coaching freelance forever, but now I'm just systematizing it. Mm -hmm. So the next step really is to start marketing, um, finding persons that are looking for a little bit of light in the darkness. and someone who has actually walked the path to take them to through the process. And so I'm at that point of doing that. And then when the coronavirus kind of subsides, then I'll start remarketing 
uh, the professional speaking. And one of the ideas I have, and I'm going to talk to you about this offline, is I plan on, once this is over, doing boot camps, weekend boot camps in Miami, where we can have 100 people come in and we do two eight-hour days of intensive development where everyone who walks away will walk away with their own personal business plan that's executable, right? Oh, so great. I plan on doing that once or twice a month right here in Miami, 100 people each, and then along the way, just build a community, a Greener Day community um, built around the idea that hope works. And so next is coaching. Then I have to do the, the act of marketing. Um, and then when it's all done, my goal is really my gift is to be the professional motivational speaker, because that's where I really thrive is in that interacting, interacting, um, interactive type of environment. So that's kind of where it's going. Uh, and I can integrate it pretty easily with being a full-time professor. Mm -hmm. um, my goal is, is someday to retire on my own terms. Right? So I would, it's not, I love MDC. I love the students. Um, I've, I've worked with great people like yourself and Dr. Harrison and Ray Sikora, uh, Mercy Arias. Mm -hmm. I've been blessed with having great people like that who have allowed me to teach as I teach and not try to make me who I'm not because I'm not the type. I'm an Aquarius. You can't force me to do what I don't want to do. And uh, fortunately, you all have been very, uh, always have been supportive of that. I, I've always appreciated it. So my next step is just to keep building and recalibrate my own vision because my daughters are older now, right? And my vision was so much built around them becoming uh, beautiful adults that now that one's an adult and one's almost an adult, they mm -hmm. can kind of start flying on their own. So um, it's, it's an inverted empty nest syndrome where um, they haven't left the house yet, but they're leaving the need for dependency because they're getting older. And so now I've spent so much time making sure that they never lived the life that I lived, right? That now I have to recalibrate what Sean's life is going to look like from here on out. Yeah. And I'm doing the very process that I do for everybody else. And I think it keeps it real. It makes it much more, it makes it a much richer experience for myself and for them. And Bahram Tavakolian told me when I was a, a senior in college, Going, thinking about going to grad school, he said, why don't you go? I said, because I'm not smart enough to teach kids that are my age or older. And he said a profanity. And he said, that's absolutely not true. You're the best yeah I've had in 25 years. And he said, the reason is, is because you're comfortable with yourself. Hmm. And it allowed me to, it allowed me to be different than everybody else, but still be effective without having my self-confidence um, attacked, right? Um, because I don't teach, <laughs> I don't use the same kind of, I'm not, I'm not a typical teacher. And I've always been very comfortable in doing whatever it takes to get the message across. And so it was he that gave me the confidence to be me when I hit the classroom. And it's worked very well for 33 years. You know, so all these things, all these people, like I said, it's just like who I've met, by the way. The reason I wrote the book is she told me to write it back in 88. Um, and, and she just, she basically said, you are a rainbow in the clouds. And that's a, that that's a beautiful cool. sentiment. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful sentiment, right? So that's the way I look at it. And I, you know, thank you for giving me this time today. You know, 
I'm definitely a talker. <laughs> <laughs> but but definitely one that leaves us with so many ideas and tools. And just now with that final story, it's a great way to close because you're teaching us that we don't go through it alone. So we've been talking about um, finding hope and having a vision so you can walk a journey that has multiple crossroads and turning points, but your vision will guide you. But we know the journey is difficult. It's tough. Yeah. Your, your journey has been incredibly difficult and you see it with a lot of people you touch. And what you just taught us as we come to a close is that you don't do the journey alone. Remember, yeah. there are people out there who believe you're the rainbow in the clouds. There are people out there who see that you're smart, who see that you can succeed, who see that you can help others. For all of us, we need to go back and think about that because sometimes we feel like we're alone and we need to go back into our memories and think of those people who have helped us, who have helped us see ourselves differently or who helped us walk part of the journey and maybe even let them know, hey, you helped me at this point, reconnect. And then moving forward, be mindful of those who are there who can help you in your journey or who are helping you with your journey. Yeah. And more importantly, importantly um, pay it forward, help others oh, yeah. on their journey. Yeah, um, build your team with people who support you. And um, let's see, what was I going to say? Build your team. Oh, I forgot the other part. Build your team. Build your team. That's a great. <laughs> Build your team of people who are going to support you because there's enough that'll bring you down. Oh, and the other thing is, mm -hmm. I always recommend you tell people who helped you thank you. Yes. Always reach back so that you can reach forward. And um, I, I, I make that because I tell you thank you every time I speak to you. I believe in telling people thank you because they don't know what impact they've had on your life. Yeah. Right. And it's a way of keeping that community connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to take this moment to thank you for being you. part of coffee and an interview for this conversation about hope works, but also as we come to a close, thank you for always sharing these stories with me, which have helped me on my journey. Um, a journey where sometimes I wasn't clear about the vision or I didn't realize that I did have a clear vision, just didn't really articulate it or know that I was using this as I walked my journey and, and tackled those crossroads and turning points. So thank you for today's interview and for just reminding me of all these tools and providing me with new ones that will help me as I continue on my journey and I um, strengthen my vision to make sure that it'll hold me, it'll be strong and, and guide me in my journey through the next few decades. <laughs> You're welcome. This is an absolute pleasure. I was, I'm very happy that you invited me. So thank you. Thank you. And for all of our listeners, we'll have a list of resources under the description with links. So you'll be able to learn more about um, Sean's books, his journey, Hope Works, and other resources. And again, you'll be able to just click on those links right underneath the description. Thank you all for listening. And Sean, thank you so much once again for sharing your pleasure. story and teaching us that hope works. Uh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jackie.